Hey folks, this is Kevin. Listen, uh, I am in Ohio. I'm at my sister's house and I did bring professional recording equipment with me and that professional recording equipment has broken. So I'm recording this on my phone in my sister's house. You're going to hear dogs and washing machines and lawnmowers and whatnot. Risk in 2020 is just an, the example of an incredibly difficult podcast to make on a shoestring budget that we are continuing to make come hell or high water. <laughs> So, on this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jeff Zimmerman. I didn't just have low testosterone. I had, like, eat, pray, love testosterone. <laughs> Tremendously unhealthy, but apparently very relatable to a lot of people. That and more, and the lawnmower that just started up behind me now. Before that, I want to give a little shout-out to our Patreon, our new member, uh, Nelly Mayer. Oh, we always give a shout-out to people who give $25 or more per month. And you know what? <laughs> we really, 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 really do need as much Patreon support right now as we can possibly get. Uh, because, you know, we're cutting back as much as we can on staff and how much we pay staff and which makes my workload such that I can't take a week off during my father's funeral, for example. So <laughs> please help us out <laughs> at patreon.com slash risk. And this week we have an interview there on Patreon with one of our favorite risk storytellers and a, a faculty member at the Story Studio, the delightful Julia Whitehouse. Such a great conversation over there on Patreon. So go over there and help us out. If you're already helping us out, maybe you can up the amount you're giving. There's so much bonus content there at patreon.com slash risk. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and I'm in the suburbs. In fact, I'm in somebody's backyard. I don't know who. So there's going to be lawnmowers, there's going to be children, there's going to be airplanes... I've kind of given up (laughs) on trying to disguise noise on the podcast anymore. You guys are probably aware that I am in Cincinnati, Ohio right now. I'm staying at my little sister's house, my sister Becca. My father passed away uh, several days ago. And my family is now navigating putting a funeral together during a pandemic. And it's quite a surreal experience. You know, over the past ten and a half years, I have treaded lightly on talking about my family on the podcast. You know, I know I have family members who... uh, are a little apprehensive (laughs) a little unsure uh, about how much I I reveal for example about my sex life on the podcast Um, every artist every artist especially storytellers or personal essayists have to be very very judicious about what they say about family members in their art But it's crucially important that artists express themselves as fully as they possibly can. Even if it does sometimes make family members (laughs) a little antsy. My mom, (laughs) I love her very dearly, but my mom used to lose her mind every time a new episode of The State would air on MTV in the 90s. That was my sketch comedy show. She felt like any reference to sex or drugs or religion that we had on that show was just way beyond the pale. And so I would get a talking to every week. And, you know, and that was a show that MTV considered appropriate for nine-year-olds. So I knew when I created Risk that... I had to keep my parents away from the show, you know, because it would be way too much for my mom especially to handle. But 
my parents have always known what the philosophy of this show is. They have always known what my mission was in creating this. And my father was endlessly proud for my having created this show. He told me every single week, every Sunday, when we talked on the phone, he would tell me, I'm so proud of what you're doing. You know, that comedy stuff that you did might have been more popular, might have been gotten more recognition, but helping people tell stories about meaningful moments in their lives, that is doing good work for people. And my dad cared very deeply for people. I would not be the man that I am if it weren't for my father. My dad was born in 1937. He was the fifth of five boys in a big southern family from Faulkner country, Meridian, Mississippi. Dad was the baby, but he was the first Yankee in the clan, they used to say. He was the first baby born in the North after the family moved up to Ohio in the 30s. And Dad was a big-bellied bear of a man. He had a beard that, when he was younger, was red before it went gray and black hair. And everyone associated him... <laughs> with his uproarious, wheezing laughter and his long, jokey stories. My friends in, in grade school and high school, they loved coming over <laughs> and trying to make my dad laugh because they thought it was so hilarious just how hard he laughed. He always seemed like he was about to have a heart attack when he laughed. Well, Dad was, he was raised Roman Catholic, and the faith meant everything to him. He was a deeply spiritual and religious man his whole life. And the Jesus that Dad believed in was always the Jesus who cares most about the outcasts, the poor, the foreigner, the woman accused of adultery, the poor children, the Jesus who loved the prostitutes and the working people, and the Jesus who lost his patience with the rich and powerful. At his funeral, Dad wanted the song sung one last time where it says, the, the Catholic hymn that says, whatever you do, for the least of the people that you do for God. And I remember when I was maybe eight or nine years old, I was sitting on the floor in front of Dad in the living room. Uh, he was sitting on the couch. I was sitting in front of him. We were watching a documentary about Martin Luther King. And I turned around at one moment and I saw tears streaming down his face. 
he used to march for civil rights back in the 60s, and he worked as an organizer for social justice initiatives for the Catholic Church at various stages in his life. And from him, I learned the principle that still guides my politics. That is, whatever activism you can do and whatever politics you go with, make sure it is serving the most vulnerable. Dad was an artist. And he used to quote the Catholic monk, who was one of his heroes, Thomas Merton, who said that God is an artist the first and foremost creator. So there is a special place in the heart of God for all creative people. And they are ushered into a special place in the kingdom of God. <laughs> but he was always humbled that he did commercial art for a living. He would wince about that, you know. He was a graphic designer. He did a lot of work for Procter & Gamble. We used to brag when we were kids that he designed the GIF label, the peanut butter, <laughs> which was true. Um, but Dad always wished he could have had a career like John James Audubon, you know, with his beautiful bird paintings. Dad was a bird watcher. And he made dozens and dozens of paintings and drawings of birds throughout his whole life. But his ultimate calling was to raise a family of five children. He loved, loved, loved my mother. Loved her so much. He, he always said that she was just the best that he couldn't have done any better than her. And I, you know, I just worry about my mom now. Because, you know, she met him when she was 17 years old and he was 20. I mean, that's 63 years ago that they met. And he was always obsessed with opera and uh, classic literature on one of my mom and dad's first dates. <laughs> he took my mom to a bookstore. And then as they were browsing through the classics, she asked if he wanted to buy any of them. And he said, I've already read them all. Then when he was about 10 years old, a priest at his grade school, this sounds creepy, but it, it's not. <laughs> when he was about 10 years old, a priest at his grade school recognized that he was a sensitive kid and thought he might appreciate going to the opera. So he took my dad to the opera and dad just became obsessed at 10 years old. And then when I was seven years old, my dad decided that I was the one of his three sons who could probably appreciate the opera. And that meant so much to me. He started taking me when I was seven 
I, I cherished those trips to the opera with my dad. And, uh... He would always take us to White Castles first, too. <laughs> I thought that was so funny, you know, the high and the low. But I remember... I remember sitting next to him during uh, Gounod's opera, Faust. And in the very end of the opera, the devil is trying to drag Marguerite, the heroine, off to hell. And the devil bellows out to her and says, she's damned. But then suddenly the clouds part and a chorus of angels sings from the heavens, saved. And Marguerite floats up to heaven as the angels are singing. And I remember looking at my dad right next to me, pounding his fists on his knees with how overjoyed he were, was with that part of the opera, with, you know, tears coming down his cheeks again, just loving this glorious moment. And my own sense of Catholicism came from his love of all the art that came from it. Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Beethoven, Mozart, Verdi. He once bought me a record of uh, the symphony Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov. And he said, listen, Kev, see how the violins sound like the ocean waves rolling. But he also introduced me to other music. For my 10th birthday, he bought me Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And I played that record <laughs> incessantly. <laughs> And when I was in the seventh grade, I remember one day we were driving into the driveway at our house and Bob Dylan came on the radio singing like a rolling stone. And dad said, now, he stopped. He wouldn't let me get out of the car. He said, now, st stop here. Listen, listen to these lyrics and listen to the way he sings them. So... When I was nine years old, that was the first time I was ever alone in the house. You know, no siblings, no babysitter present. You know, they figured, okay, Kevin's old enough to be alone in the house. And Dad, as he was going out with Mom, he said, there's a good movie on TV. You really should see it. And now he didn't tell me about the reputation of the movie. He didn't, like, market it to me. He just said, I should see it. And so I fell asleep on the couch in front of the TV. But when the movie started, it started with this loud, scary horror music. And it jolted me awake. Well, it was Citizen Kane. And so at nine years old, I had never seen a movie <laughs> anything like this. I was bewildered and transfixed. And I was in the process of realizing as I was watching that a movie could be a great work of art. And you know what? When it ended, I was in tears. 
people laugh when they hear that. They're like, you cried at the ending of Citizen Kane? I was just so taken aback at the beauty of the movie. Well, I have two brothers and two sisters. So our family, we never did have a whole lot of money. There were some especially lean years. But dad and mom knew how to make occasions special, especially our annual Christmas tree hunt, which was always accompanied by music from Handel's Messiah. Dad was spread really thin. I mean, there was only so much time he could even spend with us. He was working so hard. But I'll never forget how, when I was 16 years old, I'm a sophomore in high school, he took me on a walk to go get chocolate malteds, which we both loved. And I remember the sun was setting on Harrison Avenue and we're walking down the street and he said Kev some of the artists that I admire most are men who had a very different way of thinking about romance and sex even I'm talking about Leonardo da Vinci Walt Whitman, Tennessee Williams. <laughs> well, as I hear him going through this list, all the blood drained from my face. It, and, you know, my guts just froze. Uh, I heard those names and I knew that he was about to ask me if I was gay. And... You know, as I've said many times on the show, I I knew I was gay basically my entire life. But I was caught off guard in this moment. You know, I I didn't feel ready. I didn't know what this might lead to because I hadn't prepared this moment, you know? So I denied it. I said, oh, no, 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 no. Well, then two years later, like a week before I went to NYU, I came out to mom and dad on our screened-in porch. And dad said, I asked you a couple of years ago. And he seemed hurt. But in any case, he totally accepted me right then and there. And, you know, soon enough, we were laughing about it. And, listen, so much of what I do, you can hear him in it. Dad was a storyteller. He, he loved what they call shaggy dog kind of jokes. Those kind of jokes that are like stories that are going on too long (laughs) and then end with a like ridiculous groaner of a pun or something like that. His favorite one, and I would die when he would tell it, was the one about the man with no arms who rings the bell at Notre Dame Cathedral but falls out of the tower one day and the people say, Well, his face sure rings a bell. (laughs) 
and he could just tell those jokes really well with the characterizations and all. And then when the Jesuits at my high school asked if I wanted to go to Peru when I was 17 to work for the poor in the desert slums out there, a lot of the students that they asked, their parents said, are you fucking kidding? Hell no. I mean, there was, it was a little bit dangerous down there at the time. But dad was so for the idea. And that risk story called Man at Hawaii about my time in Peru was the only recording of myself from the podcast that I've ever shared with my parents. But they both loved it. Now, we began expecting dad's death uh, really 12 years ago. He made it through stage four cancer and a heart attack, getting a pacemaker, a stroke, having two knees replaced, having terrible arthritis in his feet and shoulder. And finally, he was dealing with the early stages of dementia. I mean, it was, it was rough. But he did not complain very much, you know? He was a real, he was very humble and gracious. Although he, he did joke a lot about his health. I went to the hospital with him once and the doctor asked for a bit of his health history. And dad said, well, have you ever read War and Peace? <laughs> and uh, when we moved dad into the assisted living facility where mom and dad are, we told him it even had a swimming pool. And dad said, well, okay, if you see me floating on my belly, don't get me. I'm trying to off myself. Well, in the end, dad was reading spiritual texts all the time. Catholicism, Buddhism, and Taoism, the three spiritual paths that his hero, Thomas Merton, was obsessed with. Last Christmas, I bought him Thomas Merton's interpretation of the writings of Shuangzi, the Taoist sage, from, you know, 2,400 years ago. And Dad loved the story in the book about how a Confucian walks up to a bunch of Taoists and the Confucian is all offended and baffled because he sees that these Taoists are having a funeral, but they're, they're dancing and laughing. And the Confucian says, what funeral ritual allows you to be so irreverent? And he storms off. And the Taoists just laugh and they say, poor guy, he understands liturgy, but not life and death. So, we want to laugh and dance and celebrate my father's life as much as we can now. And I hope that my own life continues to be a part of that celebrating. I want to close here with a poem that I wrote about my dad when I was 16, when I was a sophomore in high school. It wasn't for a class or anything like that. One day I was just 
inspired to sit down and try to capture the essence of my dad in a poem. So I wrote this for him in 1986, and he loved it. And he asked that it be included in his funeral celebration. Here it is. He pours another beer, listening with love to today's radio opera and placing a cut of the wonderfully strong cheese, monastery made, and a fine treat for a man of limited means and five unlimitable children, between two slices of dark rye. He proceeds with a Dickens, cradling the paperback in broad hands. Something written there strikes him as so funny that he doubles into wheezing hilariously until he is as red in the face as those patches not yet gray in his great beard, which, with his kisses when I was a boy, would fill my face. I enter the kitchen, and he is glad to see me, to share some of this cheese and the author's anecdote. Ah, but suddenly Siegfried bounds into a magnificent aria, a glorious thing, and he must stop to conduct it. Lead me through. A dancing bear, fists flying, claps exploding, now tippy-toeing, bringing to fiery, sweeping life for me what would have been only sounds. Then, an unusually revealing observation, how the music feels like something Paul wrote to the Romans, something that never would have occurred to me, but an idea to live by. And a minute later, he's fixing the toilet. Let's get to the stories now. 
In a little bit, we're going to hear from MJ Kang. And I have to warn you, there's a sexual assault in that story. But before that, one of our all-time favorite risk storytellers, Jeff Zimmerman, live at Caveat in New York City with a story we call Eat, Pray, Love, Testosterone. guys let's get into it a couple years ago shit 10 years ago i had just the barest whisper just like a faint brush with testicular cancer thank you for your supportive noises (laughs) fucking animals no it's just i'm fine i didn't have any chemo or radiation but just 24 hours after my second opinion me and lance armstrong are riding the same unicycle forever You know, I came out of surgery and my stitches healed up pretty quick and I just wanted to get back to work so bad. I was like, I'm just gonna get back to work because that's gonna be back to normal. Uh, I was doing social media PR for Time Warner Cable at the time. So it's like, I just can't wait to put my suit back on, get on the train, go into work, sit down, log into Twitter, and then just let the hatred of America for their cable company (laughs) wash over my brain and body for eight hours. It's probably how I got cancer in the first place. (laughs) You know, every now and again, you work at the office job. It doesn't matter how much you get paid. You get up, you go to the break room, and if there's, like, leftover lukewarm sushi, you're like, I could buy lunch, but right? I just wanted to do that every day, and that's just how I got through my life. And I thought I was fine. I really thought I was fine. I was spending an inordinate amount of time laying in bed with my laptop on my stomach just watching Cheers and crying at the theme song. Oh God, y'all know the Cheers theme song, right? I mean, it it jerks at you if things are going fine, but then, and I would just be sitting there watching it and it comes on and it goes, making your way in the world today takes everything you got. And I was like, you know, it really does. Taking a break from all your troubles sure would help a lot. Help me out here. Wouldn't you like, and I was like, you know, it would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Yeah. Sometimes you want to go. I was like, oh, fuck, here it comes again. Where everybody knows you. And I'd be like, why can't I control my feelings? Shit. Four times a night, five nights a week. Finally, my girlfriend looks at me and she was just like, you know, there's something wrong with you. And I was like, well, maybe there is, but I resent your pointing it out like that. And she's like, no, I I think I know what's wrong with you. I've got a little experience in this department. You should really check out a doctor. And I was like, how would you be so condescending at a time like this? You, right? You're an accountant. How do you know what's wrong with me? How do you even have the equipment to be able to empathize with what I am dealing with in my life right now? And then she just goes, listen, I have cried at a television theme song every month since I was 12 years old. Your hormones are messed up. Go to a doctor. 
And uh, yeah, I went to a doctor and it turns out I didn't just have low testosterone. I had like eat, pray, love testosterone. <laughs> Like, tremendously unhealthy, but apparently very relatable to a lot of people. <laughs> like, I no longer had to worry about toxic masculinity. That's like toxic femininity. Anyway, I just can't shit on that book enough. But, um, <laughs> so, no wonder, right? No wonder I'm crying at Cheers all the time. Like, I, 24 hours after I found out what was going to happen, I lost a testicle. So I'm still processing the feelings, and I no longer have the hormones in my body that allow me to take those feelings and jam them down into a tiny little box like every guy is supposed to, right? So they're just flying out all over the place. So the doctor gets out this huge needle, sticks it right in my ass, and just jacks me full of synthetic testosterone. And I'm not compressing this for the story, I'm serious. Six hours later, I am literally drinking a Manhattan with one hand and getting a personal best score at Big Buck Hunter with the other one. <laughs> We're just like, I'm back! So what could possibly go wrong? Well, I'll tell you. The thing is, if you haven't had testosterone in your body for a very long time, which apparently I hadn't, and then you just get it all at once, it's like going through puberty but with a 33-year-old sense of restraint and consequences, it was very difficult to cope with. I remember getting on the train one time to come home from work, and I just get on, and it goes, ding, and then the doors just shut, and then I was like, oh God, I wanna fuck this L train right now. Like, yeah, everybody on it, but also the actual metal form of transportation. Like, the way it goes into that tunnel like that. I just want to dominate that machine. Show it who is boss. And then I was like, now, hang on a second. You're in a committed relationship right now. And if you cheat on your girlfriend with an actual subway train you're gonna feel terrible about yourself the second it's over. And then what's gonna happen, right? One day you're gonna be coming home from work and then the train's gotta go express and it's gonna blow right past you, not even say hi, you're gonna get your feelings hurt. You're just not set up like that, okay? Barely keeping it together. And then also, Dirty cops and pro wrestlers and muscle guys in Chelsea, just generally insecure men, have been getting black market testosterone for so long that it's a controlled substance and it's real hard for someone whose body actually needs it to be alive to go get it on a regular basis. Today, I got a call from my doctor who was like, yeah, we know you need that uh, medication, but the software's down, we can't write a prescription anymore, the software for controlled substances just doesn't work. So um, until we work this out, you're gonna just have to, I guess, cry at cheers. Um, we'll let you know. And you know, sometimes they go in the pharmacy and I hand them the prescription and they would like run it. And they'd be like, okay, nope, that's a controlled substance. Now your insurance is canceled and you're gonna wanna leave here very quickly. The cops are on the way for some reason. <laughs> so now whenever I go in the pharmacy to get it, I have this huge chip on my shoulder about it. Cause I'm just like, just once, let me just walk in get the stuff and then walk home without having to do all of this bullshit all the time. So I'm like ready to pop every time and then of course I can't get the stuff. And then I'm just like, God damn it, shit, what kind of show are you running here? And then the pharmacist looks at me and they see like 6'2 guy, social media guy for the Hells Angels basically. And, and 
they're like, hey, let's calm it down. I think you could use a little break from testosterone, buddy. Sure you need that stuff. So yeah, that's just how it is. And it's just the whole time I was just like, I just eventually, I'm gonna figure out how to get these weird urges under control. I'm gonna get my insurance figured out, figure out what kind of weird like honeybee dance I have to do through the insurance system to get the medicine I need. And then I'll figure it out and we'll just be getting back to normal around here, okay? And then I'm in the, uh, the doctor's office, I'm about to get a CT scan and you gotta drink this liquid that tastes like robot piss. Oh my God, it's awful. And just sit there and let it marinate your body. So I'm drinking it and marinating and then this couple walks in and the woman is stunning. Her posture just indicates she's never really heard the word no for very long. And her eyes just look like chips of iceberg and her bone structure is flawless. And I know this because you can see all of her bones. She is ravaged with cancer. And she just walks in there in a robe, you know, sits down. And then this guy walks in right behind her. And just like the way he entered the room, just the way he's like looking around and like how like perfectly gray his hair is right at the temples, just the right amount. Looks like a Viagra commercial. And, I, and he's got this Italian suit on. He looks personally responsible for an entire financial crisis. And and he has this weird off-season tan that only incredibly wealthy white people get. Like, it's that color where like, you know on white people's assholes how they're a darker color than the rest of the body from just, they're stained, you know, from decades of shit just cruising past the, the doorway there. This anus-colored man just comes walking in like he owns a place, looks around, sits down next to the, the lady and immediately just falls asleep on her shoulder. And she's like, get up, come on, get up. He's like, oh, oh God, I'm so, uh, sorry. And she's like, are you literally sleeping in the cancer ward right now? And he goes, I'm just really tired. I had to do some things after work last night. And she goes, oh yeah, do some things after work last night. I think we know what that really means. God knows how many women you've been with or how many drugs you've been doing with them. And then he says, and I really wouldn't recommend this as a rebuttal, he says, uh, we have an understanding. <laughs> I think we agreed that what I do after work is my time and you're not to ask questions about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, she says, oh, yeah, 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 I remember that understanding, and I remember another part of that understanding that you've conveniently left out. Oh, what's that? Well, you know that I cannot think for myself when you're around, and when I need to think for myself, I need to be alone. Where do I go to be alone? That's right, the villa in Switzerland. Okay, so I'm in Switzerland, in the villa, <laughs> thinking my thoughts about our relationship, and who should show up? 36 hours later with all of his buddies and then we're just doing blow and skiing again like always <laughs> what kind of james bond life is this i'm cool with a couple vintage batman comics you know and and he goes well i don't think i should have to put up with this anymore and she goes well you don't get out of my life we're done i never want to see you again Goodbye. She's dying and dumps a guy in the cancer ward and then stomps out through this door, slams it. It's the best breakup anybody's ever witnessed, you know, and 
I'm just like, what next? I'll tell you what next. The nurse just ruins her whole breakup by pushing her back into the, the waiting room. <laughs> Because she's like, no, 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 we haven't got the machines calibrated yet, honey. You're going to have to sit right here, sit here with your boyfriend and just wait. And they're just looking at each other and just like, <laughs> breathing all fast. I felt electric, you know? Like, this breakup is very good for me right now. I'm, I'm a ball short. Uh, I got some serious uh, emotional problems. But these people have money poisoning, right? That stuff rots you out from the inside. Not all rich people have it, but only rich people have it. It just rots you out from the inside, and then you're just a husk. And then, oh, you just to get excited about anything, you gotta rub, you know, the cocaine and smoked salmon and helicopter rides all over yourself just to feel a thrill. It's horrible. And then I started looking at the guy a little more and I started feeling bad for him. You know, I, I, he's really a pitiable creature because men are always told and they're only told, right, that your only value in society is the power you can command, the money you can get, and then the women you could score with that money and power, right? And if you do that like really well, you get more and more opportunities to do that at a higher and higher level. And dudes like that, like every politician is terrified that somebody's gonna take it all away from them because then they're just gonna have nothing and they think they're gonna be worth nothing. This guy is like top shelf bad messages for men right here, walking around, he's doing all of it and it looks exhausting. It, it, like if that's the goal, the goal sucks. Can you be a good person at all if you are that wealthy? Can you just be a decent dude if you have multiple homes and like a ton of girlfriends and every now and again you get to go to Jeffrey Epstein's sex island. Like are you, can a good person do that? I think the answer is no, right? I would just think that if you were like ethically non-monogamous at that level, you would only be talking about your feelings or talking to an accountant like 100% of the time. I need to sit around in my drawers and watch Robocop again every now and again. So I don't think that life is for me. Like. <laughs> Uh, you need some testosterone to function, I've learned, but too much of it is a fucking prison, right? And I've been walking around talking about things are going to get back to normal. Normal actually sucks too, right? There's no normal. Everything changes all the time. What makes us humans is our ability to adapt, right? I only had to lose one testicle to learn this, and this guy's got to lose at least six. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Good night. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got Taking a break from all your worries, it sure would help a lot <clears throat> Wouldn't you like to get away? <clears throat> Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name Stop it, stop it <clears throat> And they're always glad you came you want to be where you can see the troubles of all the <laughs> You want to be where everybody knows. Oh, fuck me. Fuck me. Oh, fuck me.
I was walking my hometown of Toronto, Canada. Toronto the good. I walked along Avenue Road to Harvard Street, near the University of Toronto. I wore my black army boots and thin cotton dress. It was nighttime in the summer. I loved the air. How light it feels once the sun says good night. That's when I was grabbed from behind. The air became static. The shock of being grabbed took the wind away. I heard him grunt. It was deep yet sharp with an element of surprise. The male stranger grabbed my breasts and then put his arms around my waist, his hands on my stomach. I sucked in my tummy. Even in that moment, I felt pressure to be thin. I felt my dress rising up and I held onto it to protect myself. He stopped lifting the fabric. Instead, he held onto me tightly. I could tell he wasn't tall because his face was against my ear. His breathing was shallow. It came from his open mouth. It was so close to me, it made me feel nauseated. He was determined to do something I didn't want to find out, but I was stuck, unable to move, unable to free myself. He started pulling me back, dragging me to somewhere I didn't want to go to. I needed to do something, so I became as heavy as possible, as if I were dead. And I screamed. Standing ahead of me was someone at a traffic light. It was a quarter of a block away. I saw him turn towards me, towards us. I screamed again. Please see me, see us. Please stop this from getting worse. I wanted to say. I suddenly fell to the ground. I gasped. Was I free? Was I no longer worth the trouble? I stayed there for a moment on the ground, unsure if I should move. There was dirt on my hands and the little beads of garbage felt gross as if I were dirty, stained, marked. I rubbed my hands against my dress, got myself up, and saw the person waiting at the lights. Please stay there, I hoped. I thought, if I could run to him, I'll be safe. Everything might return to normal. But I turned backwards, towards where I thought the person who had grabbed me would be. I only saw the back of him. He had short, dark hair and was wearing a white, long sleeve shirt and dark pants. His shoes weren't dress shoes, but I couldn't tell what kind they were. He snuck into the alley. I hadn't noticed the alley before. I must have passed it when I was walking. Was that where he emerged from? Had he been waiting and I, unfortunately, was picked as his victim? Was he planning to drag me there? What more was he going to do? I didn't want to think of it. I needed to go. I ran toward the person at the traffic lights. The quarter of a block felt so long. My legs felt heavy and uncoordinated as if I were running for the first time, but I wanted, I needed to touch safety. Please be there for me, I thought. I had never before in my life 
needed someone to stay. When I reached the lights, it had just changed, but he was still there. This person who had heard me scream. He was a young man of about 20, my age then. He wore a light blue button-down shirt, jeans, and his short blonde hair was very neat, as if he just had a haircut. He had his hands in his pockets. He was looking towards me, but not at me, and then I caught his eyes. He looked at me, puzzled. I saw his mouth open slightly, and I waited for him to say something, anything. But then he turned and looked straight ahead. I stared at him, waiting, hoping for him to say anything to me. Silence. The air felt heavy again. We stood there at the lights only a few feet apart. He was in the center of the sidewalk, ready to cross. I was just to the left of him, staring at him. Say something. Anything, please. It felt cold and familiar. This hadn't been the first time I'd been grabbed on the streets by a stranger. Other times, I ignored it. Other times, I pretended it didn't happen, but this time, someone had really seen it. Please ask me if I'm okay. I'll tell you the truth. He remained silent. When the lights changed, I started running. I ran the 20-plus blocks to my apartment. I ran past Cora's Pizza, the place my middle sister and I walked to on Sunday afternoons to grab slices for lunch. I ran past Harbor Bakery, where we would share a lemon poppy seed loaf until we were too full so we brought it home to freeze. I ran past the women's bookstore where I had purchased my first copy of Our Bodies Ourselves. I ran by my father's corner store at college in Ossington, hoping he was still there. Sometimes he stayed open later during the summer months, so when the nightclubs closed, he could get a little extra bit of business from customers wanting to buy cigarettes. He was closed. I continued running until I reached my little bachelor apartment on College Street, near Dufferin Avenue, where the streetcars screeched as they turned. I ran fast as I tried to find some sort of safety because I wanted to get away from the person at the lights as much as I wanted to get away from the person who grabbed me. I couldn't count on anyone, just me, I realized then. When I came home, it was empty. The air upset me. It felt so heavy. Things were not right. The poison of the experience had followed me. How was I going to stop the poison from spreading, from becoming a part of me? I picked up the phone and called my husband, who was staying with friends in Malibu, California. I was just grabbed on the street. I repeated to him several times until he heard and understood what I was saying. But you're okay now, my husband said, because he wanted me to be okay. I don't know if I am, I replied. You're on the phone. Nothing bad happened. Listen, I need to go. I'm in the middle of a dinner party. Please stay on the phone with me. I feel so alone right now. You can always call the police, he said, before he hung up. 
I sat on my wooden floor near my wrought iron-framed glass coffee table and cried. If I was okay, why did I feel so defeated? I called the police and the dispatcher told me they would send someone right over. I waited, first by pacing and then by cleaning up my place. I heard the sounds of their heavy boots walking towards my front door before they knocked. I let them in, two male Toronto police officers who were much taller than me. I told them what had happened. They were concerned. I saw it on their faces, and the more concerned they got, the more I needed to downplay it. I just thought it would be best if I reported in case anything else were to happen that night, I told them. But I couldn't hide my tears. I was trying so hard to not cry that I was crying more, which only made me cry deep tears so I could barely breathe. Are you okay? One of the officers asked, and I could only be honest. I wish I was. I wish this didn't affect me. No, I'm not okay. I could recommend a support group have someone call you tomorrow. No, I can't. I'm Korean and Koreans don't believe in therapy. The police officer passed me a card, just in case. I wasn't going to call. I had to figure this out on my own. I knew this was going to be my burden. When the police left, I cried even more. And then I got mad at myself for crying. I hate the stereotype of a fragile, helpless, petite Asian woman. But in that moment, I was. I was small meek and vulnerable. I thought I had trained myself to not let these things affect me. I thought I could handle this. A few months later, the police called me. They had apprehended a suspect. They asked if I could come in to identify him. I told them I couldn't because I never saw the person's face. I wish I had. I later read in the news that they had arrested someone who had raped a lot of Asian women that summer. Thankfully, I wasn't one of them. But I felt terrible for the others. And then, I soon left Toronto because it was no longer my home.
This is Risk. This is Maggie Rogers behind me now. And we just heard from MJ Kang, who you can find on Facebook at M Kang J. That story was edited by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Before that, we heard a little interstitial called Cheers for Tears by Olivia Oyama, Jeff Barr, and David Crabb did some extra vocals on that one. And before that, we heard from Jeff Simmerman. Now, a different version of that same story that Jeff told is on his latest album, Why You Should Be Happy. It's incredible. It's available at jeffsimmerman.bandcamp.com. the champagne ready the nba finals are here welcome to the nba finals let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing My here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss it's a crowning our next champion here's a toast to the nba finals the 2024 nba finals presented by youtube tv continue on abc While you were sleeping, your babies grew The stars shined and the shadows moved Time flew, the phone rang There was a silence when the kitchen sang Okay, this is Elvis Perkins behind me now. And our final story on this week's episode comes from one of our online live stream shows. Our next live stream is Thursday, August 13th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. This one comes from another one of our all-time favorite Risk storytellers, Christine Gentry. And we were all so moved the night that Christine shared this at the live stream. It's another story about family. Here's Christine now with a story we call 2,500 Miles. While you were sleeping, the time changed. All your things were rearranged Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> So my parents met at a Texas bar on a Friday night. My dad said, I'll give you a nickel if you'll dance with me. And my mom said, all right, stranger. And that was that. They spent the weekend together. My dad proposed the next Monday and they were married a month later. And all the pictures from their wedding are like crooked and blurry because everybody's drunk. (laughs) And then two years later, they find themselves pregnant with me in a shitty studio apartment in Love Field, Dallas. And they looked around the apartment and were like, well, this ain't gonna work. (laughs) And my mom said, well, you know, there's this girl at work. She keeps talking about this Jesus guy. Maybe we could check that out. (laughs) And that's how I came to be raised in the church. 
and in a house that didn't have a drop of alcohol in it. It's hard to know when the trouble started. I would say when my parents left Texas and moved to rural Maryland my senior year of undergrad. They stopped going to church and they started drinking again, which, you know, at first was fun. Like, I'd gone through my own big breakup with God in college and, like, who doesn't like cracking a beer with their parents, you know? Like, there's this shift from child to friend, which is really cool. And it felt like we were entering into this new version of life together. But it didn't take long for us to realize that mom wasn't drinking the way we were drinking. Mom would drink without stopping. Mom would drink until she got really sloppy. And I have these vivid memories of going out when I was visiting them and she would stumble out of local restaurants and there's like laughter and whispers at our backs. And my face would just hot shame, you know, I would flush with it. And we all tried our own interventions, you know, me, dad, my brothers, individually and together but nothing would stick. She would be clean for a few days and then she would call one of us, drunk, high on Ambien, slurring. And eventually my dad had had enough. He gave her an ultimatum. He's like, I'm done picking you up from bars. And if we're out at a restaurant, I'm leaving after two drinks, whether you're ready to go or not. And eventually you're gonna get in an accident. You're gonna lose your license, lose your job hurt yourself, God forbid someone else. And if any of those things happens, I'm gone. And we all believed him, but my mom lives in rural Maryland where she's gotten away with driving drunk for years and she continued to. Spring 2018, I land this great new job. I'm gonna go launch a teacher residency program in Southern California and I fly home Memorial Day weekend to celebrate with my family. And as soon as my parents pick me up at the airport, I know something is wrong. Mom's being way too quiet. Dad's being way too nice. When we get to the house, it's way too clean. The room that I usually stay in, it looks weird. Like some of dad's things are in there. And within 30 minutes, my parents are stage whisper fighting in the back hallway. And when I ask them what's wrong, it all comes out. My dad had fallen in love with his best friend's wife. And my parents were getting divorced after 40 years of marriage. And my immediate reaction was realizing my dad is supposed to be the straightforward villain here, right? Like he's the one who cheated He's the reason this is ending. But I found my anger was actually directed straight at my mom, who was like drunkenly sobbing on the couch and just spitting the most vile, hateful things at my dad, who was just taking it. And I was blindsided by all of this, you know, like I had just taken this job. It was across the country. I had just hired my replacement in Boston. I had just signed a lease in Southern California. Like, how is this happening right now after 40 years? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, I spent the rest of that trip frantically trying to keep the peace between them and wondering, like, should I pull out of this job? Should I 
stay here and help them navigate this. Like, I've gone through divorce. I know how awful this is going to be. But as soon as I got back to Boston, my therapist was like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, you've got to go. It is not your responsibility to fix your parents. And I, all I could think was like, isn't it though? <laughs> you know? Like, I worried myself sick. Was I being selfish? Was I making the wrong decision? If I make this move, I'm going to be farther away from my parents than I've ever been in my life. And I'm the only responsible child. I mean, my brothers are MIA emotionally, and my parents had made me promise to not even tell them. So what if something happens and they need me and I'm a continent away? But I, I move anyway. I do it. And everyone spirals. And one night I call my dad. And as soon as he picks up, I know something is off. First of all, he's drunk. And that is not normal. <laughs> like, my dad does not get drunk. And then it was clear that he had been crying. And that is really not normal. Like, I've seen my dad cry three times my whole life. And it turns out that the woman had chosen her husband, my dad's now ex-best friend, and had completely ghosted him. He told me that he had a gun and he just kept saying, I'm so sorry, Christine, I'm so sorry. I love you, I love you and I'm sorry and just know that I tried and please promise me you're gonna take my dog promise you'll take my dog and I put him on speakerphone and I texted my mom who was out drinking and my brother who lives in West Virginia and I kept my dad talking for the two hours it took my brother to drive over there and clear the guns all the guns from the house and when I talked to my mother later that night she hissed, I wish he had just done it. And I hung up on her. My next trip home was July 4th, 2019. I love July 4th. July 4th is my favorite holiday. And I was going home to say goodbye to the house that my dad had built with his own two hands because neither of my parents could afford to live there alone. And it was supposed to be this big bonfire party, and my parents actually didn't end up inviting anyone except for me and my brother, who didn't show. So it was just me and my two viciously fighting parents for hours. And then when my mom finally left, she hugged me and she wouldn't let go. And she was crying into my shirt, and I could feel the wetness against my skin and it revulsed me. And I've never felt this way about my mother and it scared me and I pushed her away from me. And when she left, my dad decided to tell me that he had made me executor of his will and that there was a line in it that directed me to mail half an ounce of his cremated ashes to the woman. He said it was the weight of his heart. And I was sitting there paralyzed with how fucked up that is when he said 
You know what I want? I want a banana split. Let's go to Dairy Queen. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> like, so we went to the world's saddest Dairy Queen in Maryland's saddest rural town. And we ate banana splits in silence. And then we went home and watched Predator. And then my dad drove me to the airport the next morning. And we've never spoken about that again. He made me promise never to tell anyone. I refused to go home for Thanksgiving or Christmas last year. I was like, I'm not doing it, you know? And I actually found myself grateful for this 2,500 miles that I had initially really dreaded because it kept me the safe distance, you know, from the storm. And this last year, you know, despite being terrible in a lot of other ways, like it's actually brought a lot of healing to me and my family. You know, to be clear, my mom still drinks and it's still a problem. But, you know, my family now has this video text message chain that we have and my parents have actually fallen into this really beautiful friendship, which is nice, you know, because like divorce is not lobotomy. <laughs> and I think it's been easier for my dad to be out of the day-to-day slog of being married to an alcoholic. And earlier this year, they actually met people at around the same time and started dating. And hilariously, their partner's names are Jackie and Jack, which is just so weird. And they call me, you know, for like advice or to tell me stories. You know, my dad will be like, I don't know, Christine, she's in the crystals and cats. I don't know what to do with that weird shit. <laughs> my, my mom will be like, what does it mean if he doesn't text back for like an hour? <laughs> And I'm like suddenly the expert who can walk them through dating. I recently made the decision to leave Southern California and go back to New York City. And I can honestly say that I can't wait to live near my parents again. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Nikki and the Dove behind me now. And we just heard from Christine Gentry, who you can find at christinegentry.net. Now, on your podcast player, if you look at the table of contents for today's episode, you'll notice that there's a list of links there for everything you could possibly want to look up about risk. For example, there's a link for how you can support risk on Patreon at patreon.com risk, how you can make a one-time donation to risk at paypal.me risk show, 
how you can get your tickets to Risk live shows at risk-show.com slash tour. And the next one is August 13th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You can get the Risk book at theriskbook.com. You can take our storytelling classes of all kinds at thestorystudio.org. You can hire me to make a personalized video at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. You can hire me as a coach at kevinallison.com. And you can text with me about risk and storytelling at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. I have been having so much fun texting back and forth with fans via subtext. That's joinsubtext.com slash risk show. Pitch us your Halloween stories. We are right now starting to collect scary stories. Scary in any way. It could be, you know, a ghost situation. It could be an injury that was particularly frightening. It could be um, a fight or or a nightmare or a drug trip or, or anything like that. You can learn all about how to pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. And look us up on all your socials. On Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. Folks, <laughs> today's the day. Take a risk. This one comes from another one of our all-time favorite Risk storytellers, Christine Gentry. We were all so moved at the live stream the night. Fuck my fucking fucking fuck 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 fuck. 